Good morning. Hey, turn uh, into your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 12 this morning, continuing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. This is... um, this is week number 26, so praise God for that, you know, and a lot of uh, praise to him, but credit to you all, Fellowship Raleigh, for loving to study God's word, and it has just been a great time uh, looking at the book of Acts, and so we're in chapter 12, all right, so get there. Last week, and really the last two weeks, we were in chapter 11. Uh, hello. So big, profound statement there, um, but but we were looking at the... Um, first church to the Gentiles, the church in Antioch was established in chapter 11. And so that's all going on, and that's very exciting. And then chapter 12, we'll come back to that. In chapter 13, which we'll look at in the next couple of weeks, we see the church of Antioch doing this great like missionary endeavor. So what's with chapter 12? I say that because as you study the Bible, and as we're looking at it this morning, it's sometimes helpful to think, why is this here? You could, you could be in chapter 11 talking about the church at Antioch. You could be right in chapter 13, and the church of Antioch again is now sending out people on the mission field. And you could just take chapter 12 right on out, and you would not miss like a beat in like the narrative of Acts. And so sometimes it's helpful to ask the question, what would I be missing if this wasn't here? Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, put your finger over a verse and say, what would not be here if this verse wasn't here? And I think similarly with this chapter, like why, God? Why is what happens in Acts chapter 12 here, other than that it happened? I mean, of course, it's there because it happened. But but why did Luke include this story? And it's interesting, it's very different from what we've been looking at. The title of the message this morning is Hassled But Not Hindered. And and what we see in Acts 12 is very different from chapter 11. There is no great conversion. No one bows the knee to Jesus and says, praise God, my eyes are open now. That doesn't happen. There's no real great ministry story. It's kind of a dark beginning to chapter 12, and then some things happen, as you'll see. Much of the book of Acts is about expansion. Chapter 12 is about opposition. Much of the book of Acts, we see almost superhuman examples from the disciples. In chapter 12, we see some flawed disciples. So it's different. There's a verse in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. You've maybe heard it before. I just want to read it to you because I want it to be fresh in your mind as we go through Acts 12. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's the big idea. If you take one thing away from this chapter this morning. God, listen very closely because this is the point. God and His purposes are not at all hindered. 
by the strong opposition from the world or by the lack of strong faith in Christians. Not in the slightest. God and his purposes are not, are never, are not hindered. We've got to get it into our minds this morning. Not hindered by the strong opposition of the world or by the lack of strong faith in Christians. And yet we often believe both of those things can hinder the work of God. And so let me now read Acts 12. It's 19 verses. I'm going to do my best. Follow along if you can, please. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to study uh, this passage through the lens of this idea that God and his purposes are not hindered by strong opposition or by lack of strong faith. So Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, uh, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he, that's Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. 
Bow with me. Lord, we thank you this morning for this incredible story. Lord, help us to see why you have put this story before Fellowship Raleigh Church this morning. Lord, we bring our lives to your word this morning and we ask that you bring the truth of your word powerfully into our lives. God, we thank you uh, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we pray now that the Spirit would illumine these truths to our hearts and that we would see Jesus as great and glorious. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, Um, so first point, we're talking about strong opposition. So again, the big idea, you know, I said it already, but just consider for a moment the strong opposition in the world to the gospel, to God, to Jesus, to the light, to the truth, to Christian holiness, let's say, to sharing about Christ, to a biblical worldview. Just consider the opposition. Consider even how strong it is. It's scary. Think of some specific ways in which the world strongly opposes God and His ways in our day. Maybe it's the Taliban opposing Afghans when they become Christians. Maybe it's clan and family oppression killing Yemeni people when they become Christians. Maybe it's public schools attempting to indoctrinate children. Whatever it is. Ways the world seeks to oppose. I say that as someone who has kids in public school, okay? Maybe it's um, forced participation in Pride Month at your job or where you shop or where you get your coffee. Maybe even on the set of Chosen. Now let me read the point here, the first point. God is not hindered by that. God is not hindered by strong opposition from the world. And so here I want to go through this text. I want to show you the sword, the security, and even the searching of the strongest opposer that there could have even been, King Herod. And I want you to see how God is not in the slightest hindered. Verse 1, about that time, here we're looking at the sword of Herod. Verse 1, about that time, Herod the king, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Not a great time to be a Christian in Jerusalem. Herod the king here is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the Herod that was reigning He built the temple, uh, the second temple. He was the Herod who was reigning at the time that the three wise men came and said, we're looking for a king who was born. That's the Herod. That's his grandfather. This is Herod Agrippa. It says in verse 2, he killed James. Man, why would you do that? He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You remember these guys, maybe from the Gospels? James and John, they're brothers, they're fishermen. Their dad's name is Zebedee. 
There are two of the 12 disciples. They once asked Jesus, hey, when we get to heaven, can we sit at your right and left hand? James and John, these brothers. James, dead. Verse 3. So so Christians in Jerusalem are probably feeling kind of scared. Verse 3. And when he, that's Herod, saw, watch this, that it pleased the Jews. Now he's the king of the Jews in Judea. Underneath the authority of the Roman emperor, he's the king of the Judean area. So he saw that it pleased the Jews. What that means is it pleased his constituency. It pleased the population that he was over. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, what did he do? He's like, I want to please them some more. So he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. We'll come back to that. So Herod is the king of the Jews. And, and what's interesting here is that he, he kind of he kills James and then he sees that they liked it. So he's like, all right, like, cool. Low-hanging fruit to have some sort of high ratings for my approval as their king. Let's now arrest Peter. That's it. Luke goes out of his way to kind of paint the picture that way. Like, Herod is like actually kind of in this story indifferent toward Christianity. He's just using it. He's just using, in this case, a Christian leader, that's Peter here, for his political gain. If it would have caused the population that he was um, ruling over to be pleased with him to bring Peter in and make him a part of some faith council, I believe Herod would have done that, actually. But in this case, it pleased his constituents to arrest Peter. And so that's what he did. The sword of Herod. When was this? It says in this verse, during the days of unleavened bread. This is a seven-day feast that happened around the time of Passover. Luke mentions it four times. It's basically a time on the calendar. He's saying this is when this happened. This is from the Old Testament, from Exodus, when the Israelites would eat unleavened bread for seven days, and before they would do that, they would be charged to remove all leavening agents, yeast, from their homes. Can you imagine how hard that would be? It's easy to like go remove like a loaf of bread, but how do you find every leavening agent in your home? It's hard. And it was for them a picture of how difficult it is to remove sin from our lives. It's easy to see the big stuff, but how do you address the smaller things that have a big impact? The hidden things. You say, that's a stretch. No, it's not. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses that exact metaphor when he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the days of unleavened bread, this was a seven-day period of time right after Passover, around Easter in the month of April. That's when this was. Verse 4, And when he had seized them, he put them in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, you can't help but hear the echoes of the trial of Jesus in what's happening to Peter. 
Everything is so similar. Herod would have put him in a place that is called the Antonio Fortress, dedicated to Mark Antony. This was connected to the temple, intended to protect the temple. This was sort of the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem. This is Peter's now third time in jail in the book of Acts. He's got like cred at this point. And, and this says in this text that there was a squad of four soldiers. And so basically, this or four squads of soldiers, and a squad was four soldiers. So 16 soldiers responsible for protecting and keeping Peter in his jail. They would have rotated in shifts, and so it would have at all times been four soldiers guarding Peter. This is really getting into a later point, but I just want to keep the the flow of the text intact. I want to read to you verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We will come back to that verse. Here's the point though. Here's the point here. God and His purposes are not at all hindered by strong opposition from the world. The sword of Herod cannot hinder the work of God. Whatever ways the world attempts to use the sword to intimidate the people of God. And yes, God may allow trials, even the death of Christians like James at times, to advance His glorious and mysterious ends. Yet, remember, the world's sword cannot hinder the purposes of God. It's a pool noodle type of sword. It has no power against the purposes of God. And Luke wants to remind us of that. Look at the security of Herod, verses 6-10. through Again, nothing could have been stronger than King Herod himself using his sword and his security to oppose the purposes of God, and yet they are feeble. The security of Herod, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, So this is the night before Peter's execution. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Note how Luke tries so hard to show us how good the security was. He's sleeping between two soldiers, not chained to one soldier, but sleeping between two of them. And centuries, that's more soldiers, before the door were guarding the prison. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. Watch this. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. Skip to verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came now to the iron gate. And the iron gate, it says, it opened itself for them on their own accord. Okay, here's the point. This is Herod's security. This is his maximum security jail. This is the Antonio Fortress. This is the best that the strong opposition of the world could leverage against the church. Sleeping in between two soldiers, two chains. It's interesting, though, how Luke tells the story. The chains fall off. The two soldiers that were sleeping, they're not even mentioned whether they were woke up or not. Their impact was so insignificant, it didn't even make it. 
The two soldiers that they passed by as they left the prison are only mentioned in the sense that they passed by him. There's no observable or recordable altercation to be shared about. The iron gate was not busted down, was it? No, it just opened for them. What's going on here? I think I know. Luke is determined to show us how Herod's maximum security is absolutely no match for God. Literally, God is rescuing Peter from this jail like an adult playing capture the flag with a bunch of nursery babies. It's no contest. What's the point? I think the point is that we would in this moment picture and remember that it cannot hinder the work of God, the security of Herod. Whatever ways the world attempts to muzzle, to contain, to lock up the truth of the Word of God will ultimately fail. Now the searching of Herod, quickly this point. Skipping to verse 18 and 19, which we'll also talk about later. But look at verse 18 and 19. This is after it all goes down. The next day. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Okay. So, so the next morning, Herod is like, dun, da, 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 da. all right, I'm going to go get Peter. I'm going to put him out for a trial. It's going to be just like the Jesus trial. And... We're going to kill Peter, and it's going to be like when we killed James, and all my people, they're going to be real happy with me, and I'm going to be a popular king. And he gets there, and he's like, you imbeciles, what has happened? And Peter's gone. Okay? This is frustrating. A manhunt is underway. A fugitive has escaped, locked down the perimeter. King Herod is personally interested in this prisoner. This is not a shoplifter in Fuquay. This is the one person that King Herod went himself to the jail to get and to do this whole thing. It's funny though. God kind of has like an undefeated record against Herod's family on this kind of thing. For 2,000 years, undefeated. Do you remember uh, when his grandfather was like, go find that baby for me? God's like, yeah, no luck. Here now, his grandson, Herod II, is like, find Peter. No luck. What's the point? We are to picture this. We are to remember that whatever ways the world seeks to search out and shut down the people of God, those efforts will ultimately fail because God is not hindered by the strong, even the strongest opposition from the world. Not at all. So now we'll look at our second point. But as we do, I want you to consider something. Consider the ways in which the church So now, not looking out at the world, but consider the ways that the church, consider how Christians, in your estimation, do not live up to their calling at times or their potential to make a difference for Christ. Maybe first think of others, and maybe your disappointment's there, but even of your own walk with the Lord. 
Consider these shortcomings, this, let's call it a lack of faith. Perhaps your lack of prayer at times, your lack of sharing your faith, your lack of making disciples. You know, consider all the deconstruction among Christians, the divorce rate among Christians. Consider maybe the disillusionment that you felt on January 6th, seeing so much of that being done in the name of Christ. Regardless of what you think of it politically, I doubt any of us think it should have been a big Christian thing. Consider the moral scandals of celebrity pastors. Consider that there is celebrity pastors. Consider these things and how they might be a discouragement out there or in you. And just know this. God's not hindered by that. God is not hindered by that. God is not hindered by the lack of strong faith in Christians. He's not. He's not hindered by strong opposition from the world, and he also is not hindered by the lack of strong faith in Christians. Not at all. The first point I want to show you is from verse 5, and it's simple faith of the church. So look again at verse 5. So here's the response to Peter being imprisoned. Peter was kept in prison. Here it is, three words, but earnest prayer. And then there are three more words at the end of this sentence. By the church. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Hmm. The response of the Christians, Peter's friends who were followers of Jesus, the response to his arrest, to his nearly certain death, just like James, was to, Luke says, earnestly pray. Altogether, the church, corporate prayer, it's really not much, but it's all they could do. Powerless. No army. No rights. Luke clearly wants us to see how in the early church they earnestly prayed. And how we should as well. The word earnest used here, it means persevering. It's the implication that one does not waver in their display of interest or devotion. Earnest, eager. Sometimes in the Bible it's translated as stretching out. It's the same word used of Jesus' prayer. It says Jesus earnestly prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and He sweat drops of blood. Earnest prayer. It's all they could do. Simple faith. And and before we... 1,000% commend their earnest faith in their simple prayer, which we should. We should acknowledge that their prayer was far from perfect. It was far from perfect, and we know that because as we keep reading, we see how shocked they are that their prayer got answered. Their prayer was far from perfect in many ways. Maybe they weren't even praying for Peter to be released. Maybe they had so little faith. They didn't think Peter would be released. They thought, oh, he's going to die like James. Let's just pray that he has a bold sort of testimony to the end. Who knows? Why were they so confused when he was released? If they were praying for him. Either way, the point is, it was far from perfect. But they did pray. And that's encouraging, right? It's interesting. Sometimes we feel like we should do more than pray, and sometimes we really should do more than pray. Hire a lawyer. Network with someone you know that's influential. Protest. Fiercely argue. Perhaps it is at times important to do these things. They couldn't do any of these things. 
But listen, when we don't do those things, just know that you're not in any way hindering God. Simple faith, mere simple faith as expressed through this earnest prayer. That doesn't hinder the work of God. Nothing hinders the work of God. Now let's look at sleepy faith. Simple faith. Now sleepy faith of Peter. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod... So we're going to look at some of the same verses, but through a different lens of what we're seeing from the Christians in this passage. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Okay, listen. The Bible's funny. So... It's really funny, actually. There's a lot of humor in this passage, and so you just might need to be okay with that. Um, first of all, Peter is in a deep sleep. And like, how? He's in between two men, and he's in a dungeon, and he's going to die the next morning. And he's just like out cold sleeping. And you know, that's what we see in the Bible. Like, Paul is on death row singing. Peter is on death row, sleeping. It's just like, no fear in death. You know, God's sovereignty produces the best night's sleep. So verse 7, so there's good about, so Peter's sleeping is not all bad, okay? So it's good. But he does have sleepy faith. So verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is funny, guys. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. The word here literally for struck means he punched him in the ribs. Like it's the same word used when Peter struck the guy in the garden with his sword and cut his ear off. The angel, okay, just think about this. The angel comes in just by the presence of the angel being a bright light. That already is a difficult way to wake up. Some of us, you know, we get a little upset when someone walks into our room and turns the light on. Maybe not even the light, but like just doesn't dim the screen on their phone. And you're like, are you so rude right now? And then they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wake you up. And then they punch you in the ribs and they say, actually, I do want to wake you up. Like, that's crazy. That is what happens. This is how God delivers Peter. A bright light and a punch in the ribs. Wake up. And he still didn't fully wake up. Look at verse 8. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, make a note of the passivity of Peter here. God does everything. He, he, it's like Peter's a little child and he's telling him his morning routine. Put your pants on. Put your shoes on. Put all your clothes on. Come on. It, it's, it's a picture of how God saves us. He does everything. Verse 9, and, and he went out and followed him. Peter's really sleepy, but he at least obeyed and followed. He did not know, watch this, This is the sleepy faith part. He did not know what was being done by the angel. How do you not know? How do you not know this is a prison break? He did not know what was being done by the angel. Was real. But thought he was seeing a vision. 
I think Luke puts this in here because maybe some people said, oh yeah, that, was, that wasn't real. That was a vision. It's a nice story that has a deeper spiritual meaning, but those kinds of things, like it couldn't happen. And Luke's like, no, I mean, I hear you. Peter actually in the moment even felt that way. But it was real. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them on its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left. So the point here is about sleepy faith that it can't hinder God. Luke wants you and me to see from this text that that Peter is hardly aware of what's happening. He's being saved. And yet he's hardly able to summon the faith to even articulate the salvation that's happening to him. He has barely enough faith to get dressed, but it's enough faith for him to be saved. Because God is not hindered by sleepy faith. Sometimes we do not have enough faith to be able to articulate exactly what is happening to us. Yet like Peter, the salvation that God is doing in our life is more real, dramatic, and powerful, and miraculous than ever. God is not hindered by sleepy faith, by simple faith. And now, slow faith. It just gets, keeps getting better. This story is so funny and so good. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, so he kind of woke up, like he realized, he like woke up fully and he realized, all right, like I'm like sitting on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. And okay, like he says, to himself, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, that's John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. It doesn't specifically say that this is the people who were praying for him when he was put in prison, but might as well assume it is. And when, verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So this is before video doorbells. This is, you know, they have the door locked for sure. They're afraid. James has been killed. Peter's arrested. He's dying the next morning. Is Herod going to round up some more people to kill? The door is locked. They, of course, being the brave Christians that they are, send the servant girl who appears to be a Christian as well because she knew Peter's voice. They're like, you go check. She goes and checks. She has a much clearer picture of what's going on than any of them that are there praying. It's so funny, though. She didn't answer the door. She's so excited. She runs back to them and says, It says, verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Watch this. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. Okay, weren't you guys praying for this? 
God answers your audacious prayer and you still won't believe it. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, so this is like a repeated thing, the word kept. This is a, this, they're having an argument. They kept saying, it's his angel. It's his guardian angel. That's what they're saying. They believed that. That was a common belief in the first century that everyone had a guardian angel. Or maybe they believed that Peter had already been executed and this was his spirit like hanging around. They're like, it's his angel. Just don't answer the door, Rhoda. It's amazing. If they were praying for Peter to be released, then their stubborn commitment to the impossibility of Peter's escape is hilarious, is strangely encouraging to us, and definitely instructive. Luke is humanizing the disciples here, normalizing slowness of faith, something that we all wrestle with. And at the same time, he's encouraging you and me to have faith, isn't he? Look at verse 16. It says, how do we resolve this situation? Look at verse 16. Peter continued knocking. So he keeps knocking. He's out there banging on the gate. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Slowness of faith. How? What is happening? It's easier to escape the Antonio Fortress, a maximum security jail, than it is to get into the church door. Than it is to be welcomed by praying Christians who are afraid and focused on themselves. This is a great verse for the welcome team. How can this be? That it's easier to get out of jail than it is to get into church. Verse 17 but motioning to them, so they're all excited now, so Peter kind of has to motion with his hand to be silent because they're being too loud and they're all going to get killed now. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, this is interesting. Um, why do you think it says this? Like, go tell these things to James. I have a couple of theories. One, a more serious one, is that I think in Acts, Luke includes verse 17, the part about tell, go tell James, as sort of like a passing of the baton. Peter is kind of cueing. James is the leader of the Jerusalem church now. Go tell him. Go tell the leader. I think another possible reason is that James forced Luke to put this in there so that it was clear he was not a part of this mess. I think That's my theory. So, slowness of faith. In a thousand ways, you and I are slow to believe. Isn't it encouraging to see that this does not at all hinder God? And the last point here, God and His purposes are not at all hindered by strong opposition from the world or by lack of strong faith in Christians, such as mere simple faith, sleepy faith, Slow faith, yet saving faith in Christ. So verse 18 and 19 is where we'll conclude. 
Now, when day came, we've already seen this, but I want to look at it now through the perspective of faith. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Whoa. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That's Herod. So so here's the picture. Peter is free. Herod cannot find him. Herod loses. In fact, in verse 30, Herod's going to die. Herod loses. Peter can say with David in Psalm 31, you take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Peter is hidden. Hidden in Christ. Hidden from Herod. Hidden from his death. Now the soldiers are put to death. Was it the four or was it all 16? I don't know. Why? Seems a bit brutal, doesn't it? It was the law. There's actually this uh, Roman law called the Justinian Code. I want to just show you part of it. The custody and care of imprisoned persons devolves upon the jailer. If a prisoner should in any way escape, for we desire that he himself, that's the jailer, shall suffer the same penalty to which the prisoner who escaped is shown to have been liable. So this was the law. Other than the Roman law being followed exactly here, in Herod's anger and his frustration, what else can you see? Friends, this is not the first time at the hands of the Romans a man has taken upon himself the penalty of another who are now free. This is exactly what Jesus did for Peter, for you, and for me. It's because Jesus did this on the cross for his people that we have no fear in death, that we are filled and thrilled in our hearts with hope. Our penalty has been paid. What can the Herods of this world, what can death itself do to the people of God for whom the Son of God has died for them, has paid their penalty, has risen for them, has offered them eternal life? And so listen, God's will, God's plan, God Himself, Jesus Christ, is not in the slightest way hindered by the lack of strong faith in the church. Does he want us to grow our faith? Yes, he does. But he's not hindered by simple faith, sleepy faith, slow faith. And isn't it good to see yet saving faith? There's a song written by Charles Wesley, and it's called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And I just want to read you part of the song because I, I know that Charles Wesley was writing this about his own conversion to Christ. But, I mean, it seems like he's also talking about this story. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. May this be our story as followers of Christ.